2023, KEI has set out on its Rethinking Korea initiative, which explores the evolution of the U.S.-Korea relationship, Korea's place in the world, including its relationship with a broad range of other countries, and rapid changes in Korean society itself. I'm Clint Work, Fellow and Director of Academic Affairs at KEI, and today I have the good fortune of speaking with E. Tammy Kim, who is a contributing writer at The New Yorker, covering labor in the workplace, arts and culture, and really importantly for our purposes, the Koreas. She's also a co-host of her own podcast, Time to Say Goodbye, a contributing editor at Lux Magazine, a 2022 Alicia Patterson Fellow, and a Fellow at Type Media Center. In our conversation, we explore various topics, from her deep personal connection to the Korean Peninsula, common misunderstandings between the United States and Korea, her past writing on both the hope and then the failure of engagement with North Korea, and then different aspects surrounding the long-standing U.S. military presence on the Korean Peninsula. Well, yeah, it's so nice to have you here today, Tammy. Um, Thanks for having me. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you as well. Um, I was joking with in our staff meeting on Monday about you know, that I was preparing uh, for this this podcast and how you cover such a diverse array of things. There was like, what don't you cover? Oh, um, please, thanks. <laughs> and and so, you know, you obviously you cover uh, for The New Yorker and on your own podcast and, and in other writing um, and, and speaking engagements, you know, a really broad array of subjects from labor issues to politics, art, culture, ethnomusicology, <laughs> Um, and also, of course, the Koreas. Um, and so for listeners who may not be as familiar with you and your background, what is it that brought you to focus on the Koreas in your in your research, travels, and writing? Sure. Thanks. Yeah, um, I think this is a curse and uh, a wonderful upside of journalism to be sort of a dilettantish generalist. But um, the Korea piece is, is obviously somewhat personal. Um, I'm Korean-American. My parents are part of the post-65, like, immigration wave. Um, they didn't come, though, as professionals. They came as workers and, and students. Um, I, so I was a heritage speaker growing up, and obviously we talked about Korean stuff, but we were pretty distant, honestly, from Korea. And they came in the 70s, and I think, like, because of the way technology, you know, was at the time that I was growing up, um, we weren't in constant communication with our relatives at all or, like, in touch about Korean news. Um, and it was really only as an adult, I think, that I took more of a kind of, like, intellectual interest in Korean affairs and became much more than a heritage speaker, like, became fluent and able to do more professional work, Um more quite recently. And so I had this first career as a lawyer. And then when I was um, transitioning into journalism, I started kind of writing about Korea here and there from the United States. Um, and then in 2016, 2017, obviously a lot of stuff started happening geopolitically that made Americans much more interested in Korea. Mm. And I think especially when you're a freelance writer and then when you're a freelance writer writing about stuff that's happening outside of the United States. So much of your work is really determined by whether or not Americans in that particular moment have an interest sure. in what's happening. Because as we know, like I think generally the news cycles and the news interest in the United States tends to be somewhat insular, which we can talk about. Um, but at that time, so much was happening. And so in 2018, I started making trips as a reporter 
to um, to South Korea and since then have been making somewhat more frequent and quite long trips. So, you know, one or two or three months since mm. that I'll spend in, in South Korea. And um, so has that's been an opportunity both to kind of look at things politically, but more kind of social, socially, sociologically um, by forming, you know, I guess, like some roots there and kind of circling back to some issues also that maybe were of interest to my parents and their youth. So some of it is is kind of personal. But um, yeah, I think like it's been this kind of happy fusion of a sort of personal disposition towards some of these issues, language improvement, and then just kind of the opportunism of, mm-hmm. you know, the the American audience. Yeah, yeah. Um what was the expression you used? General, generalist, dilettante. Yeah, dilettante. right. Dilettantish generalist. D- dilettantish yeah, generalist. Right. <laughs> I think I'm going to use that for myself moving right. forward. <laughs> it's a good thing. It's nice. Actually. Um, you touched on a few things, and and the the next question I wanted to ask sort of maybe burrows down a little bit into one of those points, which is so KEI's mission. One of our missions is to help Americans better understand. Um, Korea itself and also U.S.-Korea relations. And so policymakers in D.C., but also really importantly, people outside of the Beltway. Um, It's one of the unique um, sort of value-added things that KEI does, unlike a lot of other think tanks, is we really run a lot of programs all over the country. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's to help people better understand this really longstanding relationship. And so in the spirit of that, and, and based on your own work, what have you, what are some things that you think Americans really don't know or understand about the relationship um, that that maybe they should know or better understand? Mm-hmm. I'm sure there's polling on this, but I, I assume that most Americans don't think about Korea, don't really know anything about Korea, but maybe that some of the Korean cultural wave stuff has pierced the consciousness of like youth. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, you know, so what I ask a 17-year-old in high school, I recently went to a colleague's, um, a colleague is a high school teacher, um, to talk to his class. And there were a bunch of K-pop fans of all races, you know, so 16, 17-year-olds who are learning hunger, like all the stuff we know sure. about what K-pop has produced, which is just always kind of gets me and is fascinating. Um, but then, you know, ask their parents or grandparents. And obviously, if they have any thoughts at all about Korea, those will be more oriented towards the war or, mm-hmm. you know, some notion of over thereness. I think. Um even the word Korea to me is very is interesting and something I think a lot about our usage of Korea. Like, do mm-hmm. we mean north or south, or are we gesturing towards a pre-division, you know, unity on the peninsula? Like, all of this stuff is very fraught. Um, I think to the extent that people who are reading the news or thinking about world affairs are thinking about quote unquote Korea, a lot of times it might be about North Korea. And things, you know, issues around like the nuclear process or, um, you know, just the Kim regime um, that are kind of draped in sensationalism and some exoticism. Um, Maybe in that regard, there's less interest actually in South Korea as itself, like South Korea per se, outside of its relationship to North Korea in geopolitical terms. Again, unless I think you are somehow already oriented towards South Korea because of culture Mm. or if you're thinking about it historically. Something that I think like as a journalist and as like an American I'm always thinking about is like what – how does like the unipolarity right now of our world shape like our consciousness and our approach to other countries? And Mm -hmm. I think for Korea this is very tricky because um, I think looking outward towards the Korean peninsula from our position as the global hegemon, um, we are both over and sort of underestimating 
our role in Korean affairs. So, for instance, I think um, although most Korean most Americans may not think about Korea or only know about the war, um, they are they aren't necessarily thinking about you know our our continuing relationship with Korea or other Asian countries. They're not thinking about our bases there, our military and economic influence, even control. Um, on the other hand, I think. We assume that South Korea will, is our sort of steadfast ally and will always be in, quote, lockstep with us, right? And if they stray from U.S. policy, then it's somehow an affront. Um, and so I think this becomes very complex when it comes to our relations with, like, China and Japan or even Southeast Asia and South Korea's arms industry. Um, you know, are they this kind of, like, younger brother figure that we are constantly mentoring and that will do what we say? Um, or is it, you know, is it actually its independent its own kind of independent place with its independent logic. Um, I think like from a news perspective, we haven't really shook this kind of like younger brother assumption. Mm. Um, in 2018, I wrote this piece for Columbia Journalism Review called Covering the Koreas, which is kind of about like the journalistic terms of of covering the peninsula. And um, it was my argument there that I think it, much foreign reporting, not just on the Koreas, but around the world is, is – um, you know, has this kind of problem of both getting over American insularity um, and also correcting for a Washington, D.C. bias. And so, for instance, in, in the Korean context, like different um, national newspapers or media organizations will have bureaus in East Asia, including in Korea, increasingly actually in Korea because of what's been going on with China. Mm -hmm. um, and for some things, they will rely on those reporters and their kind of like indigenous or local expertise. But then a lot of times they'll actually rely on D.C. reporters to give like the actual take on what's going on. And there's a conflict a lot of times between those. Um, but I think there can be like a privileging when we're doing political analysis to do it from the United States. Um, so anyway, I think like uh, just to, to summarize, because I'm sure I've babbled and made nonsense of this answer. No, but all, um, But I think – I would say that the American problem with regards to Korea is maybe not unique just about Korea, sure. but is reflects this kind of general problem of not being able to see clearly from inside of the most important country in the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's uh, yeah, it's definitely not unique to Korea, but it's it's like, very sharp. It's very acute yeah. in the Korean case. We were sort of touching on this before yeah. we we started that point about privileging the political perspective here. It's like on the one hand. That's obviously necessary. You want to get the perspective from from every place, but that bias is understandable insofar as policy gets made here, which right. has an overwhelming influence there. It's true. Yeah. However, I think to your point, if I hear you correctly, that policy can't really ultimately be effective and sustainable if it's not incorporating far more than it, I think, currently does. Mm -hmm. That that local indigenous sources and perspective, and yeah, and has bias and its own sort of internal legitimacy there. You know? Yeah, no, of and course, so right? There are biases both. Right, I think right, that's yeah. so – I think it's it's very, very difficult. And yeah, so I think – and also, I mean, something that I'm very bad about is like I, w I will say like, oh, yeah, I'm going to do a lot of reading on Korean sources, not just American sources. But I'm not often doing reading on like Australian or hmm. European or African sources looking at Korea looking also, at Korea. right? So yeah. I think like also respecting that Korea has its own – external relationships, yeah. right, with other actors in the world. And 
they're probably not as important, honestly, as the its relationship to the United yeah. States they or are maybe China. Not as right. important. Yeah. But it's changing. But it's and changing. we'll see. Yeah. You know. That's a key part of what we're doing too, is looking at yeah. Korea's relations with other places, but how those places view Korea. Because mm-hmm. it's actually sometimes quite different from how Koreans view themselves in right. these relationships in yeah. the world. And so um and I, I I'm like interested in going down that road, but yeah. but I wanna um touch on a specific piece of writing of yours and a subject matter that we hear talked about in DC these days, which is the, you know, the the diplomatic and engagement process under the previous two US and South Korean administrations, the the Trump and and Moon Jae-in administration, and the shock of the failed Hanoi summit. And in DC policy circles, you'll hear you'll hear people bring this up, this shock, mm-hmm. um, insofar as it was a shock to Kim Jong Un, who had put such a, a a large personal stake in these negotiations and and going to Hanoi himself. And when it when it fell apart for the various reasons that it did, um, it really uh, the shock of that really has undermined uh, the different parties involved, among other reasons, ability mm-hmm. to come back to the negotiating table. Um, you know, at least from North Korea's perspective, as some would say, that it's it's essentially raised the bar now for them to come back in, right. in a way where no, the Biden administration and really no standard U.S. administration is, is, is willing to meet that because it sort mm-hmm. of goes against longstanding do's and don'ts with North Korea. Right. And there's just no flexibility there. And, and, and maybe North Korea's asks themselves are, are too high as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was also the shock in the other Korea, in mm-hmm. South Korea. And this is your piece, um, The Failed Summit Isn't So Funny in Seoul. And I remember reading, I was living in, in Incheon at the time. I was a, a, a professor at the University of Utah's Asia campus there in Songdo. Yeah, cool. And uh, I distinctly remember reading your piece and and feeling it because I was already having conversations um, to that effect with Korean friends of mine in in Seoul, mm. um, and so I was curious if if you might be able to maybe unpack some of what she wrote in the piece, and then I can't believe it's been four years, but four years yeah. hence your sort of reassessment or assessment of where things stand now. Yeah. So I yeah I'm curious about the conversations you had with friends. I assume they were quite emotional. I mean, mm. that period. During that period, people were were hopeful, actually, that something might be changed in this extremely strange chemistry between, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, with Trump and Kim and Moon, um, and that there is a little bit of a sense that um, despite Trump's antics and everything we know about him as a person and a political figure, that there was something maybe that he kind of unlocked or just tilted, you know, the frame was like a, was slightly different. Um, I think coming out of that series of symmetry, um, I had the sense that people in D.C. were sort of smug, feeling like, oh, yeah, we knew this was all going to collapse. This was all ridiculous showmanship and um, how silly of Moon and Kim to even think that Trump was going to do anything, you know. Um, but in South Korea when I was there, I mean, I think people were were truly hurt and disappointed. Um you know, not only was it a thing I think that probably shocked Kim back into some posi- position of recalcitrance, but was obviously devastating for Moon and perhaps for the Liberal Party generally in Korea, yeah, that yeah. he had put so much stock in this in his presidency, um, you know, which we can dissect and critique. But um, 
he was sort of, you know, dealt a certain hand of cards, I think. Um, and the Liberal Party, to my mind, really hasn't quite recovered from that moment and that failure. Um, but I guess like an argument that I was trying to make in a couple pieces during that time was if we could just as Americans kind of um, recalibrate our understanding and try to see it from a South Korean perspective, we might see that um, the United States has basically, as you were saying, like attempted the same strategy toward North Korea and South Korea for many decades. Like very little has changed. There hasn't been a great deal of experimentation and Trump's engagement with Kim, again, so many so many problems with it, but it was it felt like it was trying something new and then mm. maybe something would be rechiggered. Um I think also I wanted to emphasize that North Korea's separation from South Korea has an effect on South Korean society every single day. And so, you know, just thinking about cultures of militarism and chauvinism and um like not just like like male chauvinism, but just like, you know, militaristic chauvinism, nationalism, um, the way that the national security law impinges on daily life. I mean, there's so many things that I think that are less visible to people outside of the Koreas. And so when people in South Korea are hoping from, for some sort of reconciliation, I don't think it is some naive dream of full, you know, integration, like this kind of German model. I think that's obviously sort of um, gone. But but it's a sense of maybe there could be a little bit more of a peaceable arrangement. Maybe there could be a little bit more exchange that would not only, um, you know, be economically beneficial, politically beneficial, but would sort of lighten the psychology or mm. consciousness of daily life in South Korea. I felt like those were some of the aspirations that were on the table at the time. Yeah, that's that's exactly um, the sort of sentiment that I, that friends of mine expressed who had a range of opinions about North Korea, right. like what was realistic yeah. or not. And, and These like are not, not sympathizers. Not rose-tinted right? glasses, yeah. not Pollyannish views of North right. Korea. Some of yeah. them like profoundly antagonistic toward mm -hmm. the regime itself, right? And understandably concerned about its menu of weapons that it was rapidly advancing. Definitely, yeah. Um, not to mention the, you know, the artillery that's been there, you know, for decades, right? right? That's... Uh, the mistrust uh, and the structures are so deeply embedded that it's like this isn't – there was this cri this criticism. You'd hear a lot in policy circles here in D.C. I think it was part of the smugness of mm -hmm. like this is so unrealistic. Right. You know, and it's like that. that's not the point yeah. really. <laughs> the point is like this is so steep a hill to climb that we're just trying to um, – how did you say? Just like shift the psychology ever so lightly and then operate in that space for some time mm -hmm. and then see how it might lightly be shifted further, right? Right. Um, and, you know, all criticisms and editorial comment on Trump aside, like he clearly was so outside the box yes. <laughs> on lots of things right. that – it actually opened that space. Mm -hmm. And I, I was like profoundly doubtful from at, at the start, but also profoundly hopeful. I was like, look, yeah. I'm, I couldn't be more of an opponent to this guy right. in so many ways, but I was like, I am willing to like be with you on this. Like, can, uh, but are you, are you really serious about this? Are exactly. you going to put the capital yeah. in the, the, the focus, these things that made me Right. Doubt that he would and do he it. Didn't. Right. But. He didn't. And then you're like, who does and does he not delegate things to? Who exactly. are those people? What are their worldviews? All those things. Um, and I think, I mean, he had decimated the State Department and the kind of, you know, all the texture and infrastructure of diplomacy wasn't actually there because he had laid waste to a lot of it. And so, yeah. you know, nevertheless, right, you can have 
Um, I think you can have these sorts of, you know, high level pageantry that, you know, at some point can can sort of be that the the people beneath it who need to catch up will catch up. We'll that catch was up. the hope. It can that it can set hope. a course, a trajectory, exactly. or re, re sort of reset right. trajectories, Restare, right? Yeah. And it, it it gives that high level momentum. But then of course the work needs to be done, yes. right? And yeah. one I can't help but bring this up because I think it's just an amazing analogy that uh, Jenny Town, my former colleague oh, yeah, and boss, first first I heard her first say it, but I think she said she got it from somebody else. So, <laughs> but it was like Trump's approach was it was kind of like so the Korean people call it the Korean problem, which is itself mm-hmm. problematic. Like, what country is a problem? Like, <laughs> anyway, it's very complex, right? It's like a Rubik's cube. So, like, you 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 yeah. think you've made progress, you move one side, but then things have shifted. And then, of course, and it's not just one actor moving it. It's like multiple right. actors. So Trump's approach was, well, well, this is too difficult. I'm just going to take the stickies mm. off the Rubik's Cube, put them <laughs> how I want them. But then the problem is the stick em weakens. Mm. And then the, the pieces fall off and you don't know where they were to begin with. Mm. And I feel like you could apply that to other policy areas too. But I think that's like a yeah, particularly acute picture for where we are today where it's just – uh, things were so scrambled. Right, um, yeah. Oof, that is a good analogy. It's, it's not really a hopeful <laughs> it's one. Kind of dep- yeah. Exactly. Um, it's very vivid and depressing. It is. Um, <laughs> so you touched, uh, of course, on the, the longstanding U.S. military presence on the Korean Peninsula. Mm-hmm. And this is a particular interest to me. Yeah. Because I've shared you, I'm, I wrote my dissertation on uh, Jimmy Carter's abortive troop withdrawal mm-hmm. policy. Yeah, I'd love to read it. I yeah, if, if if it's like 560 <laughs> pages, it yeah, right? puts you to sleep very quickly. <laughs> um, sort of exhaustive process tracing detail. <laughs> um, but I'm 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 sort of expanding that backwards and forwards to look mm-hmm. at the whole history and evolution. Yeah, really from sort of Paul Mill political, military, diplomatic perspective, right. sort of higher level. Um, and I understand, of course, you're you're doing similar research on the history of U.S. military presence, sort of from a different angle and perspective, mm-hmm. and um, looking at the physical spaces that U.S. bases have occupied on on you know by bilateral agreement, um, though not initially, yeah, <laughs> um, which matters, um, but bilateral agreement on you know in South Korea's sovereign territory, um, but that 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 presence has really evolved, and and you're look you've as I understand it, you're looking at how that evolution of and and um, occupation of physical space affects Korea and Koreans themselves, and sort of the really fine-grained personal histories involved in these things. Uh, and I think some of this has come out in recent reporting uh, of mm-hmm. yours. Is it right to call it reporting? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's what I thought. Okay. <laughs> um, which is, I only ask that because it's like. You report in a way that it's it's different than something you're going to read in the Washington Post and the New York Times. It's there's a little more personal, I guess. It's more personal. The human element comes out, and so I was curious if you wouldn't mind sharing some of some of that exact human element, these stories and insights that you've garnered from your research. Um, sure. Yeah. On the book. Yeah, and I think you um, you are being too generous toward this project, which is very ill-formed at this point. But basically what I'm trying to do in a longer manuscript is to write a kind of family story. Um, It's a mix of family history and reporting on what um, we have seen in recent decades 
in these base communities and the way also that the military relationship shapes migration between the United States and South Korea. Yeah. So um, it started actually really because of my mom. My mom um, was a Korean immigrant, came here in the 70s and ended up joining the U.S. Army. Um, she hadn't gone to college. And, you know, so it's sort of a that's why most immigrants join the United States military, because it's full of communism, as I always say. Um, yeah, right. um, and she ended up actually meeting my dad in the U.S. Army. He had done the same thing. Um, but my mom had a longer active duty and reserve career. And um, because of my mom's um, active duty service, my brother and I ended up being born on the Yongsan base. OK. Yeah. In South Korea and Seoul. And um and it, it was something I think that I had a really uncomfortable relationship to as a, an adolescent. You know, I didn't really think it was cool to have parents who were involved in the U.S. military. I didn't really understand it. It was also associated where I grew up, I think, as being a very kind of like, you know, something that poor people did. And what does it mean to be involved in the, in the military? And um, But I also realized that it was why I had this sort of transnational, you know, relationship um, to South Korea and could I had seen my parents go back and forth a little bit through this kind of relationship to the United States military to you know what sociologists might call empire um, and uh, so starting I guess but in about 2018 the same period when I was you know starting to do a lot more reporting there I started thinking about you know this and that coincided with the beginning of the relocation of most troops mm. in South Korea to Camp Humphreys in Pyeongtaek, south of Seoul. So right now they're still in the process of trying to liquidate Yongsan and turn that back over to the Koreans, although it's far from uh, over. Um, and so, so I was both kind of asking these personal questions of my mom about like, well, why did you enlist? How do you think about the U.S. still being in South Korea since, mm. you know, the 40s? Um you know, do is that an occupation? Is that a partnership? You know, so trying to engage someone who has been a beneficiary of the army, and so have I by extension. Yeah, yeah. Um, but to talk about it in a critical way that I think she didn't do when she was in a when she was just a young woman who sure. was trying to get an education and benefits. So anyway, so that has led to this kind of iterative process with my mom to travel back to South Korea to go onto the bases with her to um, see as you say, like this kind of physical footprint of like, wow, we are actually still in so many places around South Korea. And, you know, some people think this is necessary. Some people don't know why we're there. Um, to some people, maybe most people, it's so naturalized that nobody even asks about it. Um, so I kind of consider my research like a process of trying to denaturalize that and to just ask like very simple and stupid questions about, you know, what sure. is going on. Um, so for instance, like, um, the last time I was there, my mom and I were at um, Dongducheon, the Dongducheon area. Sure. And um, yeah, so we were going through Camp Casey and Camp Hovey, which mm -hmm. are sort of connected. And um, just having like, I like to have just very basic conversations with soldiers. Like one soldier had, um, he was taking us around a little bit and he had just come back from this tour um, to do trainings of Philippine soldiers and Thai soldiers um, and other Southeast Asian soldiers, militaries. Um, so the United States— In their countries. In their countries, yeah. yeah. So he was on this kind of mission where the army was doing these sort of spot training. Sure. Um, so you just have these kind of—end up having these sort of weird conversations about, you know, 
oh, I didn't even know that we we did that. There's so many things that we are engaged with abroad that are invisible to ordinary Americans. Um, and, and you know, so it, I have this weird process where I'll be doing that like in the morning and then at night I'll be sitting with like anti-base activists okay. who are South Korean farmers or, you know, um, just ordinary people living in the camp towns who have problems with what the United States military is doing. And they have never gone inside the base because sure. they have no access to that. So, um, yeah, I'm not entirely sure how this <laughs> – what this project will eventually look like, but I guess I'm thinking of it as a kind of like creative nonfiction project where mm. there I'm looking both inside and outside of the base boundaries and also doing reporting where I came up, which is in Tacoma, Washington, because my mom was stationed oh, okay. in yeah, Fort, Fort Bay, Lewis, yeah, Lewis, which McCord, is now like yeah. Joint Base Lewis yeah, McCord. Joint Base Lewis McCord, yeah. yeah. Or elements of 2ID would, would flow, exactly. God forbid. Yeah. Um, yeah. Right, the 2nd Infantry Division. Yeah. 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 Um, Sorry, I didn't mean to so, interject. No, no. So that's, I mean, um, that probably seems very looping, but but that's kind of like the inspiration and the the thrust of it, which is to have sort of like all of, you know, to talk to U.S. soldiers and Korean soldiers and Korean civilians and American civilians about what this feels like on a day to day basis for the people who are really intimately involved in this kind of really military relationship. Yeah, that's uh, well. Whenever it does become manuscript and book, <laughs> I'll be very interested well, in reading it. Um, <laughs> our, our projects are complementary. Yeah, I think really mine are, is kind actually. of this like, yeah, the down below part and yours is kind of like the higher level diplomatic. So it, it, it is. But on the other hand, like what, what interests me most, ultimately what interests me most is, is the type of work you're doing, quite frankly, um, because it's the, it's the people that the lived experience that, that really makes this up, the tapestry of this relationship, but also the inherent contradictions at the core of all this. I mean, you talked about occupation and partnership. It's both of those things. Mm -hmm. Now, if you use the language of occupation, people bristle at that, (laughs) U.S. and Korean too, right? right? And I understand why they bristle at that, but historical facts are historical facts. I know we have that we're in the age of alternative facts now, and, and history is subjective <laughs> Not in this to that. Room, but, yeah. but I just, you know, I take our democratic values and transparency in society quite seriously, which means we can look at all the complexities of our relationships and openly adjudicate them, mm-hmm. and that's a sign of the strength of our relationship. But politics, policy agendas, ideologies can really complicate these things. Um, but it's also a partnership too, yeah. right? And it's both of these things. And what also interests me from the U.S. perspective is not just this enormous, massive commitment that the U.S. has mm-hmm. made, which from the very start of it has been, uh, I don't know if tenuous is the right word, but the U.S. has been trying to get out of Korea from the day it arrived. And they did for a while, but then they came back. But mm-hmm. even then, there was there's always, and this is what I kind of look at in my research, is you have presidents occasionally who come into office, including Carter, Trump as well, mm-hmm. but others too who have said, you know, we really need to start to rethink our presence there, draw it down, make mm-hmm. it more flexible, maybe re- get out entirely uh, or significantly reduce our presence. And they seek to do so. And they're driven by a, an assortment of reasons but one of which is questions are raised. Well, why why are we still there in such large numbers? Right, yeah. Can't the Koreans now take most of the burden themselves? Excuse me, South Korea take most of the burden <laughs> itself. Right. Um, you know, might some sort of diplomatic arrangement with North Korea and the different 
countries surrounding the peninsula mm-hmm. enable a, a reimagining of the security architecture, mm-hmm. right? And so this is a this constantly comes up, but then the idea ultimately of the U.S. leaving is, and I've charted this in in my research is is class is characterized as unthinkable. Yeah, right? you see this in editorials from 2018, from 1979, mm-hmm. from 1992. Um, wow. It's yeah. just this this unthinkable idea, right? And then, um, so it's just, I'm interested in the tensions and contradictions yeah. in that. Um, and do you think that's? I mean, some of it, I assume, is just kind of this institutional inertia. Like, how do you even move that? I mean, just the literal That's physical a lot of it. aspect of it. Yeah. But beyond that, I mean, through all of these different political moments, what then is it that that adjective still applies through time? It's not about. It's it's not just about Korea. Right. That's right. That's the rub. Yeah. That what that means for different people means different things, mm-hmm. right? And. And especially now with China, I would think that oh, even more the so. Logic it, 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 yeah, it sort of yeah. reifies it, right? But yeah, then, exactly. it, but then, but then, South Korea is more capable today than it's ever been, right? And then, but the demands and pressures on it are also increasing more than it's ever mm-hmm. been. So the frictions that arise from that are, um, I do genuinely think the current Biden and administrations are really doing their best to tighten relations. Mm-hmm. That effort itself, though, is indicative of the pressures the, the relationship's facing. Mm-hmm. And also just the ever-shifting trajectories that have led us to a place where it's like, there's something, there's a, a dissonance in mm-hmm. in this relationship. Again, it's not new, but I think it's re- reaching a new level of um, urgency. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm sharing too much of my own thoughts no, on I this. No, I mean, I think, I think um, that's fascinating. Yeah. And I think we are on a very similar path of inquiry. So, um, so I, I I apologized to you when I initially phrased <laughs> this question and emailed about about uh, predictive analysis because I always, whenever people ask me, especially about North Korea, I say I don't even want to address that because I don't I don't know one what what Kim is necessarily thinking or yeah. what's going to happen next year or even tomorrow. Um, but I'm going to subject you to the same question, <laughs> which is, I asked you initially, so based on your understanding of the relationship, your your many travels there and your research, how do you feel things will look in the U.S.-Korea, let me be more specific, U.S.-South Korea relationship mm-hmm. um, in the next five to ten years? Mm-hmm. I guess... In sort of broad political terms, I don't see a lot changing. Mm-hmm. It seems to me that we will still, you know, be in the, what we call this alliance um, and that the power structure will still be that, you know, South Korea is essentially kind of subservient to the United States, sort of all, you know, um, so much would have to change for that to be kind of flipped in any way. However, I do think that... Um, as South Korea is growing, changing internally, I mean, it, it moves so fast, right? Mm. And I think with, I think China to me is like the big the big question. I mean, around the world, but especially sure. in this re- relationship and in this region, because, um, you know, both in terms of trade and geopolitics, like South Korea, I think is 
in this process of kind of trying to figure out its angle. Mm-hmm. Like it needs to still be very close to the United States and within the sphere of the United States. At the same time, it can't poison its relationship with China. Mm-hmm. Um, and that also, I think, bears on its relationship to Southeast Asian nations. Um, I've been interested in this emerging like literature in especially like in Asian American studies and to some extent in Korean studies around Korea as kind of the sub-empire, you know, that is like a sub-imperial um, like locus that is acting on Southeast Asia. And so if you think about, you know, South, South Korean capitalists like in, you know, Vietnam and stuff, this is a bit of an old story, but the way that it's shaping what, you know, how power circulates in Southeast Asia is very interesting to me. So some of that will bear on the United States-South Korea relationship. There's also, I think, um, although I've warned a few questions ago against like us being too U.S.-centric in our analysis of Korea, there also is this way in which some aspects of like Korean economy especially are like moving towards a kind of like American model. Like is South mm-hmm. Korea kind of trying to Americanize? So for instance, like in its arm in- arms industry, which yeah. is something I'm very interested in, um, you know, it's getting huge. Oh, it's enormous. It's yeah. enormous. And yeah. it's becoming the vendor to all of these states of, yeah. you know, um, I guess various levels of like international acceptability. <laughs> um, what is that going to mean then for South Korea's dependence on the U.S. military? And yeah. is that going to to do some of the work that we're interested in of like kind of, you know, having a real a reevaluation from the United States perspective of our continuing need to have so many troops and armaments there. So I think some of this is will will shift the relationship. Another way in which South Korea is maybe more moving towards something we consider American is like multiculturalism. Mm. Like South Korea for some time has no longer been this kind of homogenous society, right? Yeah. But that's just going to become more and more true. And South Korea is really struggling with that. Yeah. And that also affects its relationship to North Korea because there's been this kind of like blood logic of unification for so long. Yeah. But what happens when that starts to break down because there are people of all races living in South Korea? Yeah. That's already happening. Like in Pyeongtaek, the bus sure. I took was like on a given evening, 50% African. Yeah. I was renting my apartment from a Zambian immigrant who was yeah. married to a Korean man. You know, it's a very, it's complicated. And so um, I think some of these things, also gender relationships, which, you know, that's like a whole nother podcast. But sure. these are all things I think that as they maybe shift and they're already troubling the historic kind of arrangements in South Korean politics, which is why we feel so much tension when we are there right now. Mm. Um this could potentially bear on the United States relationship. On the other hand, it could just be kind of like an internal South Korean thing that actually doesn't affect the alignment that much. Yeah. What do you think? No, that's a, that's a, I mean, I, I've been interested in this question of uh, inter, intergenerational differences among South Koreans and how they view North Korea and mm-hmm. it, based in large part on the formative experiences of their upbringing and what, you know, from a generation that remembered a, a whole unified Korean peninsula yeah. as it had been for since its origins, um, to the you know the the generation that grew up under the Cold War division, maybe experienced the Korean War as mm-hmm. as as young children, and successive dictatorships in South Korea, severe right. anti-communist ones, um, and then the you know sort of the the democratization generation who sort of fought against the heavily militarized structures that justified suppression within South Korea, led to this flowering or highly contested and vibrant consolidated democracy. Yeah. And like younger South Koreans who they don't they didn't they don't have any of that lived memory. Mm-hmm. For them, North Korea is 
They know unification is still the official line. They know, of course, Korea was whole. This is a historical aberration. But their whole life, this has been the reality. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, North Korea's nuclear program has become more threatening and destabilizing. Um, their own th- th- their own socioeconomic um, sort of uh, just trying to get a job out of college, right? Yeah, right? exactly. And so, like the question of unification and the cost of that and right. these things is just it's you know. There's there and survey data bears this out. They're very different um, attitudes towards North Korea and the idea of unification. And then when you look at the demographic time mm-hmm. bomb that South Korea faces, which is just this is an, an enormous problem for mm-hmm. the country, right? And it's and I don't see any indication that it's not going to continue on the current right. uh, trajectory. Meaning like lowest birth rate in lowest the world. Lowest birth rate in the world for yeah. f- five years running. Right. Yeah. And like I'd bet my bottom dollar it'll be the case next year and the year after that and the year after yeah. that. But then this raises questions of in trying to address that, the only viable solution short of Korean women all of a sudden deciding that they want to start having <laughs> Many two and a half, three, yeah. four women, <laughs> right. uh, uh, children rather, right. is you know immigration. Or exactly, you know, and, yeah. and so the changing conception of national identity mm-hmm. um, is, and, and there's already been a shift towards a more civic nationalism, mm-hmm. right? That moves ever so um, uh, subtly beyond the sort of ethno-nationalism, mm-hmm. the blood, the shared blood. That's already been happening. Mm-hmm. But that, to your point, like will, you know, I don't know if it will solve the demographic issue. I don't think it will, because I don't yeah. know if Korea is ever going to be so open to immigration in a way that's going to substantially. Right. Uh, maybe it'll be a combination of that and and technology sure. that will help yeah. them mitigate the economic um, issues that come with this. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there are so many other um, sort of national identity citizenship questions that mm-hmm. uh, it is really interesting. And I wonder what effect it will or won't have on the U.S. In some ways, I think it will maybe strengthen the relationship mm-hmm. because... Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. I think... I also wonder, and now I'm extemporizing here, but like I think in some ways it might bode well for the inter-Korean relations insofar as younger Koreans, I think they look askance at North Korea a bit mm-hmm. and, and and maybe, but but maybe it's sort of a, more of a we're two different country type yeah. relationship. So it's it's less emotion laden in some ways. If that, right. I don't yeah. want that to sound um, patronizing towards older generations, but like just given their formative experiences, right, yeah. it makes sense they have, there's an intensity to that mm-hmm. that maybe slightly dissipates mm-hmm. and like they they can, uh, I don't know if this makes sense what I'm saying. Yeah, I think um, it does, yeah. I think there might be something to that, um, but again, that's the future and who knows exactly what it would look yeah, like. Yeah, no, I but. think those points are all well taken and I yeah, to me, it, it's just fascinating to think like how much of this will flow over into geopolitical relationships mm-hmm. versus just transforming, you know, South Korea internally. But um, but it's a small country, and I think like it, you know, almost everything it does domestically has this. How like, could it not? Right, right? foreign yeah. affairs kind of like influence, and um, yeah, but the but this. I think the other thing maybe to look out for is like with the trade relationships like around semiconductors and other forms of yeah. you know linkages between South Korea and the United States like the US has is trying to kind of you know restart manufacturing et cetera, but it's 
a very slow going process, I would say. And it seems to me that their dependence on like Asian manufacturing will only increase if that's even possible. Yeah. Um, so some of that will also shape this. But but then it's like, will South Korea's, you know, productivity be undermined by this demographic yeah. question? So there's so many questions. Also, South Korea, as you know, every time you go back seems to have it changed, oh, you yeah. know, 20 times faster than anywhere else, maybe except for China. Um, so who knows? Yeah, who knows? <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah, onshoring and friendshoring, and then anyway, yeah, exactly. Uh, I um, well, we're we're getting up to time. Uh, there's so much more that I I want to talk, and hopefully this will be an ongoing conversation. <laughs> yeah, but great. um, I asked about this is one thing I ask of everybody. Um, book recommendations. So, and and in two ways. One for somebody who knows nothing about Korea. And they asked you what book or maybe books should I read to better understand what would you what would you recommend they they pick up? Sure. So I assume for listeners here they'll be more interested in nonfiction. So I've brought some fiction recommendations because okay. I thought that, I mean for for nonfiction though I should say like I still think something like Bruce Cummings's Korea's Place in the Sun is mm. just like a very good primer on modern Korean history and sort of understanding um, the relationship also to the United States. Um, but something really great that's in translation is this book by um, Pak Wanza, who's um, a very famous Korean writer who's now gone, but it's her memoir. It's called Who Ate Up All the Shinga? <laughs> and um, it's maybe not the best title in English, but um, it's her memoir of the time like right before and, you know, leading up to the Korean War. And it's such a it's such a beautiful and personal. It's sort of like a, I would say it's like autofiction, mm-hmm. um, a beautiful novel that kind of um, – Get somehow at like what I consider like the Korean character. I mean, that sounds very sort of culturalist, but I mm-hmm. guess it is. But um, it's it's a really great read, and I think um, even though it doesn't take us up to the present, it it's is a really great orientation and introduction to South Korean history. Um, and then I think like if if somebody is already familiar with a lot of Korean things, there are two slightly more experimental things that I might recommend. One is this wonderful book called One Hundred Shadows mm. by Hwang Jong-un, who is a young um, Korean novelist. And it's um, a book that's sort of based on her dad, who was a vendor in um, what is now a mostly disappeared um, like working class shopping mall complex. Um, and so it. it in an elliptical way, gets into stories around like hyperdevelopment and hypercapitalism mm. in South Korea. And then um, a South uh, Korean American writer, Don Mi Choi, who's gotten a lot of attention recently. She's a poet and artist, and she's written two of three books in a kind of trilogy on 20th century South Korea. Um, the first two are Hardly War and DMZ Colony. And they're sort of experimental poetic works, but that makes them sound kind of more intimidating than, than they are. Um, they're really wonderful and uh, challenging, I think, even for people who are really steeped in Korean affairs. Mm. All right. I've written these all down. So okay. now you've just added to my already <laughs> metastasizing list of things links. to read. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's funny you mentioned Cummings. Um, not funny, but mentioning Cummings' Korea's Place in the Sun, because when I my answer to that first question is I have three books, but that's one of them. Okay. One, because he, he writes beautifully for yeah, a historian. Definitely. For um, a historian. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I say that like Shade. self-deprecatingly. <laughs> yeah, excuse me. Um, you know, I mean, it's like fine grained detail, but wonderful vignettes, like mm-hmm. you have personal vignettes. Um, but also Oberdorfer's Two Koreas. Mm, um, yeah. Just because it's like, it's he, he was 
he was uh, front row to all these events. That's right, yeah. And he's a journalist who writes in such an accessible way. Yeah, that's great. Um, and then Barbara Demick's um, oh, Nothing yeah, to Envy. actually, um, that's a really great one. It's yeah. such a beautiful book. Because it humanizes the fact that North Korea is filled with human beings. Yes, you know? yeah. And it's, it's, we often, it's often either caricature or existential threat. Mm-hmm. And it's neither of those things, yeah. I think, despite the legitimately threatening nature of its expanded nuclear arsenal. Um, I think I mentioned those Kathy uh, Stevens, mm-hmm. KEI's uh, president and CEO, with whom I believe you traveled to yeah, Busan and Camp right. Hialeah. Yeah, and, that was great. Um, I should have mentioned that sooner. Um, <laughs> that's Those are some books I mentioned to her and she observed. That's funny you mentioned that because two of the books you mentioned were by journalists and not you know not the sort of scholars of the relationship. <laughs> right. um, but I think that gets to the point that we've talked about, which is the just the human side mm-hmm. of this and yeah. like the actual people involved. Um, well, I've enjoyed this thoroughly. Me um, too. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, thank you for coming. And, and uh, hopefully we can have you in, in KEI's programming moving forward. That'd be great. Thanks, Clint. Thank you, Tammy. This concludes our conversation with Tammy Kim, and I just want to thank Tammy again uh, for sharing her thoughts with us. It was a very enjoyable conversation. Keep an eye on our podcast feed for more Rethinking Korea content.